0: Welcome to Cross-Examine
1: with Dr. Frank Turek.
0: What if I were to tell you that there are five proofs for the existence of God and that these proofs have tremendous advantages to them? In fact, let me just mention five advantages to these proofs that we're going to talk about today. Number one, these arguments re- require uncontroversial and undeniable starting points. You don't have to argue that the Bible is true, that the universe had a beginning or that biology is designed. You only have to observe what is obvious right in front of your eyes, such as change occurs or things are made of parts. Advantage number two to these five arguments. These arguments deal with the present and do not depend on the universe having a beginning. They don't depend on biological life or anything else having a beginning. These arguments show that God must exist right now for anything to exist right now. So it could be that the universe is eternal. It could be there's a multiverse. It could be that quantum fluctuations actually have caused something. It could be that macroevolution is true. All those things could be true, and the arguments we're going to talk about today still show that God exists. The third advantage to the five arguments we're going to be talking about today is that these arguments are philosophical and cannot, in principle be overturned by any kind of future scientific discovery. Why? Because these arguments investigate realities that provide the foundation for science. You see, science is downstream of philosophy, and science depends on arguments. These arguments, we're gonna talk about being correct. If these arguments are not correct, science would be impossible or severely compromised. The fourth advantage to these arguments we're going to talk about today is that these arguments yield most or all of the classical attributes for God. That is, they tell us about the very essence of ultimate reality. While science attempts to tell us what results we observe when the natural world is left to itself, these arguments tell us the nature of who must be causing the natural world to exist right now. Now, given the results that we observe and the fifth uh, advantage, certainly not, not, this is not an exhaustive list, but the fifth advantage I see is that while these arguments have largely been ignored or misunderstood by modern minds, these arguments have actually been formulated and survived scrutiny for hundreds, even thousands of years by some of the greatest minds in history. Now there's one disadvantage to these five proofs for God we're going to talk about today. And It's that these proofs are not immediately intuitive, and they require some time to unpack and to explain. And we're going to spend some time today doing that with my friend Ed Fazer, who hasn't been on the show in a while. Uh, He was on a few years back when we talked about his great book, The Last Superstition. This book is equally great, and it's called Five Proofs for the Existence of God. Now, Ed has his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of California at Santa Barbara. The most important thing, however, about Ed is that he is a husband with six kids. Ed, how are you?
1: Hey, I'm doing great. How about you, Frank?
0: I am tremendous, but I'll get better. Now, actually, am I speaking to the true Ed Phaser? Because there must be about eight or nine Ed Phasers out there. Because <laughs> there, is so ma- there are so many books being written, so many blogs being written, it can't just be one guy. Is it really just one guy?
1: It's I'm living proof of uh the re- reality of human cloning, I guess. And
0: and you have but, six uh, kids and you're doing all this work, Ed. It's amazing.
1: That's right. Yeah. Somehow.
0: Somehow. <laughs> somehow you get it done. Now this book, this new book, Five Proofs for the Existence of God. And, and folks, you may have seen Ed on the Ben Shapiro show. You may have seen him on uh on uh Dennis Prager's show and and several others. Uh, this book is doing quite well on Amazon right now. And for good reason, and if you don't have it, friends, you need to pick it up either for Christmas, if you're listening before Christmas or for the new year because what we're going to talk about today, we're just scratching the surface. This is these arguments are very detailed. They're very robust, and they're very convincing once they're properly understood. Ed, why don't you give us like kind of a ten thousand foot view of these five arguments? they' they're not quite, as five ways. What are they?
1: Yeah, so maybe i should maybe I should address that first. Um. I, and I've written on Aquinas' five ways uh, before, for, for example, my book on Aquinas. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this uh, book, though it's titled Five Proofs of the Existence of God, and though Aquinas certainly has a big influence on it, is not actually about Aquinas' five ways, um, though there is some overlap. Matter of fact, when I was working on the book, the, the original working title was Four Proofs of the Existence of God, precisely because I didn't want to come across as if I were pitting my own. Four you know my own five arguments against Aquinas or trying to top him or something like that, but as I worked on it, um there was a fifth line of argument that I thought really ought to be covered, and so I just decided, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and call it five proofs of the existence of god but uh, but no, it's not um exactly uh, Aquinas's five uh, five ways um so if, if you want, I guess i can I can go through and summarize what each of the arguments very briefly, sure uh, yeah. initially yeah, let's do that what each of the arguments are right so um, the five arguments are, first of all, what I'm calling the Aristotelian proof, and it's an argument inspired by Aristotle and the Aristotelian tradition by later followers of Aristotle like Moses Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas himself and so forth. It's not a, Aristotle's own argument. It's not stated the way, exactly the way he states it. Um, I try What I try to provide, and this is true of all the arguments I, I discuss in the book— there are arguments that are inspired by classical thinkers, but that are not, they don't, they don't just restate what the ancient and medieval thinkers that I discussed had to say. Rather, they're stated in a more up-to-date, uh, modern way that uh, leaves out a lot of the extraneous uh, material that you see in an Aristotle or Aquinas or whoever, um, outdated scientific examples and so forth. So the first argument I call the Aristotelian proof, and it starts from the fact that things in the world of our experience are changing. And on Aristotle's analysis, change involves going from potential to actual, and it works up to the existence of what I call in the book a purely actual actualizer, what Aristotle called the unmoved mover of the world, as the only possible explanation of how anything goes from potential to actual at any particular moment. Okay, so that's pretty abstract, but that's kind of the the basic thrust of the first argument, the Aristotelian proof. Then the second line of argument is called I call the Neoplatonic proof, and it's inspired by, among other people, the ancient Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, and it argues from the fact from 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 the fact that we see in the world of our experience things that are composite, meaning they're composed of parts, they're made up of parts, and the idea is that anything that's like that requires a cause. There needs to be something that makes it true that those parts get assembled so that the thing exists. And once again, as in the first argument. This leads to a regress of causes, which can only terminate in something which can cause without itself being caused, and that would have to be something that has no parts. It's simple in the sense of not being made up of parts. Um, And when you unpack the logic of that, you find it has to have all the divine attributes. Uh, And so it it fits the description of God as traditionally conceived. Okay, so that's the second argument, the Neoplatonic proof. The third is what I call the Augustinian proof, and it's inspired by, among others, St. Augustine. And it's also been called historically the argument from eternal truths. So the idea is that there are certain truths, like the truths of mathematics and logic, that are necessary and eternal. They could not be other than they are. One plus one equals two, or that the angles of a Euclidean triangle add up to 180 degrees. These are truths that could not be true. They are, as philosophers like to put it, necessary rather than contingent truths. And they're also eternal. They never started being true, and they never can stop being true. But, so the argument continues, truths exist only in a mind which contemplates or grasps those truths, and since the truths in question are necessary and eternal, there must be a necessary and eternal intellect in which they exist. And when you unpack that notion, once again, we have something that fits the description of God as traditionally conceived. Okay, so that's the third uh, Augustinian proof. The fourth proof, which I call the Thomistic proof, after Thomas Aquinas, who inspired it, um, argues that, we once again, it starts from what we know from experience, obviously there are things in the world of our experience that exist, and the argument there is that anything that exists but it, but is, is such that it needn't have existed, it derives its existence from some other thing. Um, we've got things in the world that exist and that that, that are caused by other things. And the idea is that the only way to explain how anything can exist at all, even for an instant, is if it's caused to exist, it derives its existence from something that doesn't derive existence but has it in a built-in way. Something All right, very hold the thought, Ed. We're going to come
0: back. Hold the thought. We're going to come back and yeah. talk about the, that proof and the fifth proof. We're talking about five proofs of the existence of God by Ed Fazer, F-E-S-E-R. Got to get the book. We're back in only two minutes. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're never going to hear this on NPR. We're talking about five proofs of the existence of God. The brand new book by Edward Faser, F-E-S-E-R. If you haven't heard of Ed, you need to hear about him. He teaches at Pasadena City College out in California. He's written some tremendous books. Um, one of them is called The Last Superstition. Another one's called Aquinas. Another one, Ed, what's the other one on mind-body? I, I had it on my shelf. I can't find it right now. Just, there's another one you Yeah, that's
1: on. Um, uh, Philosophy of Mind. Philosophy. That's and, it, Philosophy um, of Mind. I, I, think the, uh, I think the subtitle is um, A Beginner's Guide or something. That's the uh, publisher's subtitle. But yeah, Philosophy of Mind.
0: And then you just wrote a new book on capital punishment.
1: That's right, yeah. Uh So two books this year. One of them, the one we're talking about, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, and the other one is A Catholic Defense of Capital Punishment, which came out earlier this year.
0: And then if you really want to dive into what we're talking about today, in addition to Five Proofs of the Existence of God, you can get Scholastic Metaphysics. Scholastic Metaphysics, also written by Ed Faser, F-E-S-E-R. And he's got a great blog, by the way. Just Google Edward Faser. You'll find his blog. Very well written. A lot of traffic on it. A lot of uh, philosophical ideas are unpacked there, and we're just starting Mm -hmm. to unpack the five proofs uh, of the existence of God. Now, Ed, you were talking – before you were rudely interrupted by the uh, hard break, you were talking about the fourth uh, (laughs) argument or proof in the book. Why don't you pick it up right there, and and we'll move on.
1: Right. So the fourth of these five proofs I discussed I call the Thomistic proof, and that's named for Thomas Aquinas. It's an argument he uh, set out a version of in his little book on being in essence. Uh, centuries ago, and so the basic thrust of the argument is that the things of our experience have existence, but only in a derivative way. As Aquinas puts it, um, we need to draw a distinction in them between their essence or nature, what they are, and their existence, the fact that they are, the fact that they, they exist. And anything that's like that, Aquinas says, anything where there's a distinction between what it is and the fact that it is, between its essence or nature and its existence, it's got to derive its existence or have its existence caused by something outside it. And that's true here and now and at any moment it exists. And so once again, we have a regress of causes where the only possible way to break that regress is with a cause of existence, which doesn't itself have to derive existence from anything else, but has it in a built-in way, something whose very essence or nature is to exist. And when we unpack that idea, once again, we get all the traditional divine attributes, something that exists in a necessary way. It's outside time and space. It's not a material thing. It's all powerful, the whole ball of wax. Okay, and then finally there's the fifth proof uh, in the book, which I call the rationalist proof, which is inspired by philosophers like Leibniz, the early modern German philosopher Leibniz. And this argument takes off from what's called the principle of sufficient reason, which can be formulated in different ways. But one way to put it is the idea that for anything that exists and any fact about it, there must be some explanation for why it's that way rather than some other way. There must be some way to make it intelligible committed to the idea that the world is ultimately a rational, intelligible place. And as Leibniz argues, and I defend Leibniz's argument in the book and with a kind of updated, modernized statement of the argument, and one that's more influenced by Aristotelian and Thomistic or Thomas Aquinas-oriented ways of thinking, since that's my personal you know, way of looking at the philosophy. Um, this rationalist argument uh, argues that The only way to explain how the contingent things of our experience, things that exist but they could have failed to exist, they exist but in a way that's contingent upon or dependent upon other things. The only way to explain how anything like that exists at all rather than nothing is if there's something that exists in an absolutely necessary way, something whose very nature is, you might say, self-explanatory. Its nature is the explanation of its own existence. And then once again, when you unpack the nature of this absolutely necessary being, you get all the traditional divine attributes. So we get a fifth proof of God's existence. So that, now, Ed, that you... in, in a nutshell, are the, those, those are the, uh, the five proofs referred to in the title of the book.
0: Now, we're, we're talking to Edward Fazer, new book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. All the details are in there. We're just starting, we're just skimming the surface here. But, Ed, why do you call them proofs? Because, you know, some will say, hey, Ed, you can only have proofs in, you know, math and logic and these kinds. of, <laughs> why, why do you call them proofs?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. The reason I call them proofs is to, I guess I should say, first of all, that the word proof itself is used in different senses historically. And of course, these days, people tend, when they hear the word proof, they tend to think, as you indicate, of something from geometry or mathematics more generally. And they also tend to think of something that is absolutely uncontroversial, that if you call it a proof, it must be something, if it really is a proof, that no one disagrees with, or virtually no one, no sane person would disagree with. But the word proof isn't traditionally, historically in philosophy, necessarily confined just to those sorts of examples. It it has a broader usage. And so um, one reason I use the word proof is to indicate that the arguments that I'm defending in the book are not probabilistic arguments. In other words, they're not meant to show merely that it's highly likely that God exists, but they're instead meant to be strict metaphysical demonstrations where we have starting points that can be known with certainty, with to a moral certainty, say. Right. Um, the, the starting points involve, for example, things we know from just everyday daily experience, nothing really fancy, just things like the fact that, that things undergo change or the fact that they exist. And they also start with, with very general metaphysical principles. And then the, the idea is that the existence of God follows logically, it follows deductively, it follows demonstratively from these starting points. So in that sense, they're proofs. Like any other philosophical argument, they're bound to be objections, they're bound to be people that disagree with them, and you can say about absolutely every philosophical argument that there is. Indeed, you could even say about proofs in mathematics. If you have a determined enough skeptic, He's going to try to find some grounds for doubting that a mathematical proof really is certain, um, even if the grounds are somehow somewhat far-fetched. So the fact that something is controversial, or the fact that something is disagreed with by somebody, doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve the status of a proof. But in any event, that's why I call them proofs. They're not meant to be God of the gaps arguments. They're they're, They're not meant to show merely that God is one possible explanation of the phenomena that the arguments start with, but rather... They're meant to to show that, given the starting points, um, the existence of God follows with necessity. It follows demonstrably. So that's that's why I use that word in the title.
0: And, friends, there's a difference between proof and persuasion. You can prove something to someone, but that doesn't mean they're (laughs) going to be persuaded by it. There may be other factors involved that they may go, well, I just can't believe that. Well, that's fine. You still may have proved it. And I think if you get this book by Ed Fazer, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, you're going to be hard-pressed to find flaws in the arguments. These arguments have been around a long time. In fact, the first one we're gonna briefly talk about is Aristotle's uh, argument from motion or change, and he developed this 2,400 years ago. (laughs) And while he may have gotten some of his physics wrong, he didn't get his metaphysics wrong. And so, Ed, tell us a little bit about that argument.
1: Yeah, so um, the argument starts from the fact that things in the world of our experience are changing. So, for example, the coffee in the cup next to me here. Um, when I first put the cup on the table there was uh, it was steaming hot, and now it's lukewarm. So it's gradually over the course of um several minutes or hour or an hour or whatever, it's gone from being um from being hot to cold, right? And the way Aristotle analyzes changes like that is in terms of, of what he calls the actualization of a potentiality. So the coffee's initially um, actually hot and potentially cold, and then over time it goes from being Uh, merely potentially cold, to being actually cold. And in general, uh, Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophers argue change involves the actualization of a potential. Well, of course, what actualizes the potential is itself often going from potential to actual. So the coffee is cooled down by the air in the room, but the air itself had gone at some point from being merely potentially cool to being actually cool and so forth. And so we have on this sort of analysis Um, a a chain of causes and effects, or to be more precise and use the Aristotelian jargon, we have a series of one thing being actualized by another, which is actualized by another, and so on and so forth. Now, so far I've been describing the kind of cause and effect sequence which traces forward and backward in time. This is what in the book I call a linear sort of causal series. But linear causal series, the ones that extend in a straight line, forward and backward in time, you might say they're parasitic on a deeper kind of causal series which in the book i call a hierarchical causal series. This is a distinction by the way that goes back through aquinas and other medieval philosophers to aristotle, okay? And a hierarchical causal series as i describe it in the book is one whose members all exist here and now in a kind of hierarchy, right? So take the the coffee in the cup or just say the water that that partially makes up the coffee. For the water to exist here and now, the the particles that make up the water have to be actualized as water, you might say, rather than forming some other kind of substance. So the existence of the water depends on the existence of the molecules of the water here and now. And that, in turn, depends on the existence of the atoms that make up the molecules. And here, once again, we have a kind of actualization of potential. We have, you might say, the potential of the molecules to form water or some other kind of substance being actualized so that here and now they form water and the potential of the smaller-level particles to form some other substance in turn being actualized here and now so that they form H2O molecules and so forth. So we've got uh, layers of reality here and now, you might say. One layer being actualized by a deeper layer, being actualized by a deeper one, and so forth. The only way to break this, this regress is if there's something here and now which actualizes all that, all those layers of reality, without itself being actualized. It just is fully or entirely actual here and now. It's what I call in the book a a purely actual actualizer. It can actualize without itself having to be actualized because it's always already, as it were, entirely actual with no potential needing to be actualized. And then when you unpack that idea, you find that it's going to be something that exists in a necessary way. It's going to be something that is non-material because material things always involve potentiality. It's going to be outside time and space. And, again, have all the rest of the divine attributes so that it fits the description of God as traditionally conceived.
0: You know, Ed, is this the same kind of reasoning that undergirds Aquinas' fifth way? When I, when I read um, your book, The Last Superstition, I, the light bulb went on with Aquinas' fifth way. Now, I, I hope I'm understanding it right, but uh, as I understand Aquinas' fifth way, which is not in your book here, but it seems to be the same right. line of thinking. Um, that the laws of nature, which say hold the water together, are goal directed, and those laws require a completely actualized underlying intellect to direct them. Right now, is it the same kind of thinking here?
1: Well, the the, the little argument I just outlined would would actually be uh, represented in Aquinas's arguments by the first way. Okay. And so the and so the first way, and what I'm calling the Aristotelian proof in the book are focused on what you might call the the very existence or operation of the laws of nature right and what you're describing is say the way that a thing given the laws that it that, that govern it is directed towards certain ends or outcomes and if you start with that fact about it you know okay why are why is water directed toward certain outcomes like being in a liquid state at room temperature, huh. uh, then you get a kind of fifth way type of argument going, the, the argument being that the only way that something can of its very nature point or aim at certain ends or outcomes is if there's a divine mind that's pointing in that direction. aiming. All right. Like hold the arrow. thought,
0: Ed. Hold the thought. We're going to come yeah. back to this because these two ways are related and they all are, they all term it, uh, terminate in God. And we're going to see how right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk back in two. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I don't have enough faith to be an atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. This material is so good. I wish we didn't have breaks, but sometimes you got a break for a public service announcement here on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking to my friend Ed Faser, F-E-S-E-R. By the way, one of his students said in one of uh, his evaluations as a teacher, the student said, set your phasers on fun because Ed is fun and he's talking about arguments that aren't normally spoken of in a popular way at a popular level, but they ought to be because these arguments are very strong. They're immune to some of the criticisms that atheists normally dish out on other arguments. And, uh, you need to know about these arguments. That's why you need to get his book, five proofs of the existence of God. All the details are in there. And, uh, Uh, Oh, before I do, friends, I want to mention that uh, uh, January 15th, we're starting up a new online course called Stealing from God, based on my book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. And if you want to be one of the few folks in the premium version of that course, where I'll come on and answer your questions live via video you need to sign up soon because we limit the size of the class so you can interact. Much of the course is video-based, but also I'll come on Zoom live and answer your questions as we've done with the other course, uh, why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist. There's going to be at least 10 courses in 2018. That's our intent anyway, online. You can check them all out by going to crossexamine.org. Click on uh, resources. You'll see online courses there. And uh, you want to sign up for the Stealing from God course like immediately, like yesterday. All right. Let me go back to my uh, friend, Ed Faison. Or Ed, before the break, uh, we were talking about the relationship between Aquinas' fifth way and Aquinas' first way. And Aristotle, uh, Aristotle's proof that you have in uh, the first chapter of five proofs of the existence of God is really kind of mirrors over uh, Aquinas' first way. I should say, I guess Aquinas' first way is mirrored over Aristotle. Uh, but how are these two yeah. related? How is the fifth way and the first way related?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the way they're related is this: that you know, you see in Aristotle a famous distinction between four what we're what, what, what call Aristotle's four causes. Right. So mm-hmm. there's the formal cause, co- there's the material cause. Start with that of a thing, which is the stuff it's made out of, the matter it's made out of. There's the formal cause, which is the pattern that that matter is taken on. There's the efficient cause, which is what generates it or brings it into existence. And then there's the final cause, which is the end or goal that it serves, the way that, say, the end or goal of the eyes is to allow the organism to see, or the end or goal of roots is to draw in uh, water and provide stability for a plant or what have you. And one way to think about the, the, the different uh, arguments in Aquinas five ways, then, is that they start from different ones of the four causes. And the first and second ways, in, in their different respects, start from the idea of efficient cause. Would bring something into being or changes it, and argue to God from that. Whereas the fifth way starts from final cause, the end or goal that something aims at, and argues to the existence of God from that different kind of causality.
0: But I want to, I want to understand it, and, and correct me if I get this wrong. But it seems to me that both of these ways are trafficking in the in the idea that there must be a cause here and now. Because when you drill down layer by layer, like, for example, we're having a conversation right now and say, I have a thought. In order for me to have a thought, uh, neurons need to fire in my brain. And for neurons to fire in my brain, atoms need to do what they do. And for atoms to do what they do, the laws of nature have to be what they are in order for that to work. And for the laws of nature to be what they are, you're ultimately going to terminate in God, it seems. Am I missing something
1: here? Right, right. And so, and so what you're pointing to is a, is a really key feature of these arguments that I emphasize throughout the book, and this is true of every one of these arguments, which is that they're not concerned to trace the universe back into the past and arrive at a, a beginning point like the Big Bang and then to ask, well, what caused the Big Bang? It's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that sort of argument, but it's just not the kind of argument that Aristotle was giving or Thomas Aquinas was giving or Leibniz was giving or Plotinus was giving. What they were all trying to argue was that Even if the world had had no beginning, there would still have to be a divine uncaused cause of the world, because the more fundamental question is what keeps the world going at any moment. And even if the world had always been here, that could only be the case, according to these arguments, if there always has been God keeping the thing going, sustaining it in being. This is the traditional idea known as the doctrine of divine conservation, that the world couldn't exist or operate, even for an instant, even for a moment unless God at every instant is keeping it going. So the way the arguments work is not to trace causes backward into the past, to a, to a temporal beginning, a beginning in time, but to trace them, you might say, downward here and now, to a basement level of reality, to a divine pedestal that holds everything up. Or if you want to change your metaphors, to trace them upward here and now to a hook on which the entire world hangs at any moment.
0: So when, it, when a, a scientist then, an atheistic scientist says, well. Um, It's just the way nature works. It's a brute fact that it works this way. How do you respond?
1: Right. So, yeah, the idea of the brute fact is really a denial of what I referred to earlier as the principle of sufficient reason. The idea, in other words, that the world ultimately is intelligible or explainable, explicable all the way through. And there are a number of problems with this idea of denying the principle of sufficient reason or saying that. We get to say the basic laws of physics that we're dealing just with brute facts. One problem with it is that I would say that um you've got a kind of inconsistency here in the atheist who wants to say that science gives us real explanations elsewhere you know we can we can provide real explanations of the origins of a biological species or of the development of a star or the development of a solar system. But then when we get down to the fundamental laws that govern everything. That We can't give any explanation. We just have to say that it's a brute fact. Those laws operate with no intelligibility whatsoever. What I would argue is that um, having only a little unintelligibility in the world or a little bruteness in the world, it's like being a little pregnant. It doesn't make any sense, ultimately, that letting in a little bit of unintelligibility or inexplicability or bruteness into the world really takes down all the other apparent intelligibility that we see in the world. So the way I put it in the book is that to say that, you know, we can explain everything by taking it down to deeper and deeper laws of physics, but then the deepest laws of physics have no explanation at all. They're just a brute fact, unintelligible, no way to make sense of them. That's like carefully putting your books on a shelf so they don't fall, then putting the shelf on brackets so that the shelf doesn't fall, and then um, taking the brackets in turn and hanging them in midair. Well, the brackets are going to fall, taking the shelf with them, taking the book with them. And in the same way, if you explain things by taking them down to um, certain laws of chemistry, and then you try to reduce those laws to deeper laws of physics, and you take those laws and reduce them to yet deeper laws of physics, but the deepest level of laws of physics you say have no explanation, they're just a brute fact, it's like the case of trying to you know, put your books on this shelf and then the shelf just hangs in midair. The, the whole structure ultimately falls to the ground. That's That's one problem with it is you you really end up denying intelligibility to anything else in in nature or so, so the, i would argue
0: that that then is a fatal flaw that atheists essentially are undermining our entire ability to reason and do science if they're going to say that ultimate reality is right. a brute fact that's
1: that's right yeah yeah they're tossing everything that, that go ahead no, you go yeah they, they no they really are they're really falling out um they're throwing at their own baby with the bathwater, right. right? So to be, really to be a consistent atheist, I would argue, you really have to be a kind of nihilist. I mean, you really have to deny that there is any ultimate intelligibility to the world. And that means that you really have to reject the idea that science itself gives us genuine knowledge. So, you know, an atheist like, like a Nietzsche or something, I mean, all kinds of problems with his view. I think it ultimately doesn't make sense, and, and it can be refuted as well. But it's a more consistent sort of view. The Nietzschean atheism, the the atheism that goes all the way and really denies any intelligibility to anything in nature. It's skeptical about science, no less than it is about religion. That's a much more coherent—it's not ultimately coherent, but it's a more coherent view than the kind of new atheist, confident atheism that has no doubt uh, whatsoever that science gives us genuine knowledge but wants to cast special doubt on theology and traditional metaphysics. The kind of arguments that would cast doubt on theology and traditional metaphysics, if they worked at all, would take science down with them as well.
0: Now, all the details of these arguments that Ed is talking about are in his new book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. I've read the entire book, fabulous work, a lot of details, response to just about every objection you could imagine. That's why you need to get this book. You can get it in Kindle. You can get a hard copy Well, worth getting. Uh, Again, last name, F E S E R. Very well written. If you want kind of a a fun version of this that goes after the new atheist directly, you need to get The Last Superstition. Uh, We've talked about that on this uh, program before. Uh, Now, Ed, let's spend a little bit of time. We only got about three minutes before the break, so we'll pick it up after the break. But I'd love to talk a little bit about the Augustinian proof for God. Because in my book, Stealing from God, I try and make the case that when atheistic materialists say theism's unreasonable, they're actually stealing reason and the laws of logic from God while they're arguing against him. And it seems to me that the Augustinian argument that you're making here is making a similar point, but in a much more robust and detailed way. So why must reason and truth be grounded in God?
1: Yeah. So uh, as I I briefly summarized it earlier, the idea is that there's certain truths that are eternal and necessary truths. The stock examples historically are truths of mathematics and logic. And there are other ones as well, truths about uh, uh, possibilities, for example. Um, the fact that it's possible that a unicorn might exist even though it doesn't. There's a kind of you know, objectivity to that fact as well. And there are other examples I give in the book. So we have to ask, well, what, what grounds these truths? What makes it the case that these things are true? Um, and true in exactly the way they are. They're true in this eternal and necessary way. And so the argument is that uh, since these truths would remain true, even if there were no material world in existence, say, they can't be grounded in the material world. The only other place for them to be grounded, though, unless you're a Platonist and you believe in Plato's realm of the forms, and in in the book I argue against Plato's realm of the forms, the only other way for truths to exist, then, if they're not grounded in matter, or in Plato's Realm of the Forms, is in some kind of intellect, some kind of mind. And given the nature of these truths, that they're eternal and necessary truths, that mind would have to be an eternal and necessarily existing mind. And that already is enough to indicate that that would have to be a divine mind, but then there's more you could say to show that it would have to be a divine mind. There would have to be an intellect that has the divine attributes. So that's the basic uh, thrust of the argument.
0: And the mind would have to be unchangeable because truths don't change. The mind would also have to right. be infinite because, as you put in the book, if I'm remembering this correctly, just the fact that there's an infinite number of numbers or mathematical sets shows that the being that grounds all this must be infinite, correct?
1: That's right. And, and um, the idea here is that the eternal and necessary truths that we're talking about form a kind of interlocking system. This is uh, actually a point that Leibniz who um, I talk about Leibniz in the book a lot in connection with what I call the rationalist proof, the proof from pr- the principle of sufficient reason. But Leibniz was also a defender of this Augustinian proof or argument from eternal truth. And so you find All an right. emphasis in Leibniz. Hold on the phone, the Ed, because we're going to come back yeah.
0: and talk more about that because uh, All right. time just goes so quickly when you're talking about proofs for the existence of God. How about five of them? By Ed Fazer, F-E-S-E-R, five proofs of the existence of God. You need to get this book. You need to read it. You need to teach it. These arguments are very sound, very robust, once properly understood. And we're going to talk more about them right after the break. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Five proofs of the existence of God from Aristotle, Plotinus, Augustine, Aquinas, and Leibniz put into popular everyday language by my friend Dr. Edward Fazer, Ph.D., University of California at Santa Barbara, written several tremendous books you want to avail yourselves of. This is the latest one. And Ed, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about the uh, Augustinian uh, argument for truth. Yeah. I guess uh, I I I want to just be as clear on this as possible. Why, if an atheist says Ed, why do truths need to be grounded in an intellect? In an intellect, I, I don't I don't see the connection here. Why do they have to be in an intellect? Why can't it just be that truths exist?
1: Well, yeah. So the I, we have to ask uh, what makes it the case that a truth is true. Say, right? mm-hmm. and traditionally. Uh, in traditional metaphysics, there are really three options, and I at least implicitly alluded to them before the break, so just to make it explicit now. The idea would be that the truths are grounded either in the, the concrete material world, the world of, of material objects, specific particular material objects, or the second possibility is that they're grounded in an intellect or mind which grasps the truths. And then the third possibility would be something like Plato's theory of forms, Plato's idea that... Um, truth ultimately exists. Truths about universal patterns, truths about mathematics exist in what's called a third realm, the Platonic third realm. So part of the background of this Augustinian argument that I set out in uh, in that chapter of the book is an argument against that third possibility, Plato's realm of the forms, that that can't be where truths ultimately reside. But if we're talking about eternal and necessary truths, then the material world is ruled out as a ground for those truths Uh, as well, because the material world is contingent. It doesn't have to exist. It can come into being and pass away. Even if you thought it's always been here, it could at least in theory fail to exist. And so it doesn't have, you might say, the kind of metaphysical status that would make it suitable as a grounding for eternal and necessary truths like those of mathematics and logic. So if you eliminate those two options, the material world and Plato's realm of the forms, the only thing left is in some kind of intellect. But the intellect is going to have to be an infinite and necessary and indeed omniscient one, or all-knowing one, for a number of reasons. Partly because, as indicated earlier, the uh, earlier in our conversation today, the truths in question are necessary and eternal. They don't start being true; they don't stop being true, and they couldn't start or stop being true. Furthermore, they form a kind of interlocking system. Think of the way that to understand any particular concept. So. Take, for example, the, uh, the concept of a human being as a rational animal. That's Aristotle and Aquinas' famous way of defining what it is to be a human being. And whether somebody agrees with that definition or not, that we're just using it here as an illustration. So just taking it as an illustration, if what it is to be a human being is to be a rational animal, then to grasp the idea or concept of being human requires that you also have a grasp of what it is to be rational and to be an animal. But then those concepts, in turn, to understand what it is to be rational or to understand what it is to be an animal— require understanding yet further concepts, so that understanding any one concept re- really requires understanding a whole network of concepts. And ultimately, to understand fully any particular one would require understanding in all of them, so that when we get to this intellect that, um, in which uh, eternal and necessary truths exist, it's going to have to be an all-knowing or omniscient intellect, one that has every possible concept within it, say, and so we're closer still to the idea of, uh, of God. And the other divine attributes can be derived uh, through further lines of argument, which I set out in the book.
0: In fact, the book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, has the five chapters on each of the arguments. And then there's a chapter on the attributes of God. Tell us about that chapter. What are you doing in there, Ed? Yeah,
1: right. So in each of the chapters, what I, what I do is I'll start out with a certain line of argument, like in the first chapter, of the Aristotelian argument. And then I'll show how that argument gets you to a divine cause, say, that is unmoving or unchanging or purely actual. But then in the next stage of the argument in the chapter, I try to show how when you unpack the idea of what it is to be an unmoved mover or a purely actual actualizer, you get all the traditional divine attributes. And I I set that out in kind of a summary way for each of the arguments. But then there is this separate chapter, chapter six that you refer to, where I revisit the subject of the divine attributes and I examine them all in much greater detail, and I consider all the different objections that have been raised historically against the idea that God is necessary or that he's omnipotent or all- powerful or what have you, and I respond to those different objections so that chapter is actually almost a miniature book within the book yeah, on the, on the nature of God, because you know there's this stock objection atheists like to raise that well Even if you get to a first cause, well, how do we know it's really all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good? How do we know it's really a divine cause and not just some finite or limited cause? So I answer that objection in detail, and I'm I'm hardly the first to do so. Uh, Atheists typically ignore the the many hundreds of pages of argumentation that writers like Aquinas and Leibniz and Samuel Clark and others historically have— have written in order to derive the divine attributes. So I do that myself in the book. That's that's chapter six. In fact – And I also – yeah, go ahead. No, I
0: was going to say, in fact, no, no conversation about this topic could go without you at least exposing the biggest straw man that atheists put forth with regard to the law of causality. Why don't we do that before the show ends?
1: Yeah, right. So, And that brings us to the last chapter, which is also almost a miniature book within the book, which is just on objections to the arguments and replies. And I try to be comprehensive and cover all the objections that have been given or could be given to the kinds of argument that I develop in the book. And the main one, this straw man that you refer to, is this this stock objection, which is the favorite objection, um, uh, certainly of pop atheist writers, but maybe even a more serious atheist writer, so many of them, unfortunately, think this is a serious objection, which is, well, if everything, if, if everything has a cause, then what caused God? And then the follow-up to that is, if you say nothing caused God, then maybe nothing caused the universe either. And the assumption there is that uh, anyone arguing for a divine first cause is committed to this principle that, quote, everything has a cause, unquote. And that's a complete straw man. You don't find any of the writers that I discussed in the book, or indeed any major philosopher in history, or even minor philosophers for that matter, forget about the major ones, giving this silly straw man argument that so many atheists direct their fire at, this argument that says everything has a cause, so the universe has a cause, right? Namely God. That's not an argument that you see in Aristotle or in Thomas Aquinas or in Leibniz um, or in any of these other famous defenders of first cause arguments. And in fact, most of these guys would not only not appeal to the premise that everything has a cause, but they would actually deny or reject that premise, that everything Mm -hmm. has a cause. What they say instead are things like what is contingent requires a cause, meaning what exists but could have failed to exist requires a cause. Or what is changing requires a cause, or what comes into being requires a cause. But that's as different from saying that everything, period, has a cause, as saying that triangles have three sides is different from saying that all geometrical figures have three sides. If I say, well, you know, triangles have three sides, and someone says, you're an idiot. Squares and circles don't have three sides, right? (laughs) And I say, well, whoever said they did, right? I didn't say Uh every geometrical figure. I just said triangles. In the same way, when an atheist says, well, your argument rests on the assumption that everything is a cause, the retort is, well, you haven't listened carefully to what I said, because that's not, in fact, the premise that any of the arguments in my book rest on, or that Arguments by writers like Aristotle and Aquinas um, are given. Not only so that, I, I actually. No, sorry, go, sorry. Go, no, go, go ahead, Ed. Complete the thought. Oh, I was just going to mention that. So this is a this is you know a straw. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Oh. And if I accomplish nothing else in my work, I guess um, exposing this as the straw man that it is, and the and the and really the time waster that it is, um, I, hope, I hope I can accomplish at least, at least that much. So I actually devote a number of pages in the book in this last chapter of the book. I right, deal with all kinds of objections, including more significant objections than that. But I devoted a number of pages to explaining where this straw man came from and how it got going. Um, and there's actually a lot of interesting history of philosophy as to how this straw man, which, which is based on nothing that an, an actual philosopher ever actually said, how it got going and how it's got the sort of currency and apparent immortality that it has. People keep attacking it even after it's long been exposed as a straw man.
0: And we need to reiterate, friends, if you're just tuning in, that. The, the arguments that Ed goes over in Five Proofs of the Existence of God, Edward phaser F-E-S-E-R, zero of these arguments have anything to do with the beginning of the universe or beginning in time. These are arguments that require or that show that God must exist here and now. Not that, not that arguments of the beginning of the universe are, 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 are completely wrong. We're not saying that, but we're saying the arguments Ed's talking about here don't have anything to do with a cause in history. They have to do with a cause here and now. And so who made God, whether the God exists now or existed in the past, is an is a illegitimate question anyway, because nobody ever suggested that God would need a cause because the law of causality doesn't say everything needs a cause. It says everything that comes to be needs a cause. And uh, Ed unpacks all this in the book, uh, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. Now, Ed, if people really want to learn more about you and, and see where you're speaking and, and check out your blog, which, by the way, it, as I say, is, it must take eight or nine Ed Fasers to run because you're, you're writing a ton of stuff over there. Where do they go?
1: Well, if they, go, if they just, uh, you know, through the magic of Google, Google my name, Edward Faser, and the last name is uh, spelled F-E-S-E-R, Edward Faser, they'll find uh, come up with the first couple, um, first couple hits off of Google uh, they'll They'll see my blog and they'll see my uh, web page so my my main webpage is this and my blog is edwardphaser.blogspot.com and uh, either or both of those resources will uh, tell you all about my uh, my different books and other writings, um, upcoming speaking engagements and so on and so forth.
0: You need to check all that out, friends. You need to get this book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God either for Christmas or if it's after Christmas, you need to get it for the new year. These are arguments that are very hard to refute. And Ed, I don't know if is there any prominent atheist today really taking these arguments on that you know of?
1: Um, I would say that in in uh certainly in popular atheism, in in the writings of people like New Atheists, uh, you don't find any serious or or usually even unserious responses to the kind of arguments that I put forward here. Um, Among academic philosophers, there's a little bit of attention paid to them, um, and maybe a little bit more now than there was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, But there's not a whole lot paid to them. And to the extent that there is, uh, I respond to those objections as well as the less serious ones. I try in the book to cover all the objections. So anyone who's interested in finding out what those objections are and how a, a defender of the argument will apply to them. And we'll find that in the book.
0: Ed, thanks for being on. Great book, great show. Thanks for doing this. Great to be
1: on. Thank you very much.
0: All right, that's five proofs of the existence of God by Edward Fazer, F-E-S-E-R. You need to get the book. You need to check him out. Don't forget about the Stealing from God course starting January 15th. Go to crossexamine.org. Click on resources. You'll see it there. God bless.